Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Bill, the, our thoughts and prayers are with you and your son, John. And your yeah, thank family. you. And many of you have expressed uh, concern and prayers for him, and he's doing better. He's got a long way to go, but uh, uh, thank you very much. You know, I'm, I'm one of these people that both take advantage of social media and criticize it all the time, but uh, feeling connected to people, you know, over, you know, who have known John his entire life, and, uh, and I appreciate and also all your prayers for my family as well. So... We we are doing okay, and uh, he's going to be okay. So thank you. When you visit in hospitals, like for do you eat in the like cafeteria or do you go out? Because you're in, he's in, he's in the center city. Huh? Yeah, well, usually in the city I go out. I mean, it depends on what time and what time of day or night it is. Um, yeah, the other day I actually ate breakfast in. Breakfast is usually pretty safe. Uh, but, oh, St. Mary's or Lindy Works. I love breakfast there. Yeah, but no, I usually, you know, where I'm at, where he's at now is right in Center City. So, I, so you have options. Yeah, I go out, you know, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of stuff around the hospital, yeah. So today— we're That's gonna, a pressing question. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just—I think about things like you that. You should have been an investigative reporter. Well, exactly. It's, you know, this is—I think about, like, institutional food is interesting because some of it is better than other. you know, like— Yeah, no. Well, my, my one son works for an institutional, or works for Aramark. Yeah, he's an upper management in Airmark. Well, I don't know what upper management. They run the, the cafeteria at Eastern University. They, they used to, or they, they used do to. a lot. Yeah, I do a lot of cafeteria. He's at the convention center here in Philadelphia. That's a wide range here. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I had an idea with something you said, and uh, I think we should come up with an award show based on awards that we give based on all the people we know that are associated with our larger network. All right. Because one of your comments made about you're just the person you just interviewed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said he, uh, he's, yeah, he's, not certain, he's not a certain he's, person. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, I, think, that, I love it. That I love it. We need to have an award show. And we can have, because we have some, we have, a, we have a cast. Like Howard Stern used to do the FMEs. <laughs> we, have, we, have a, we have a cast of characters. Yeah, we could do like our own version of the FMEs. And each, you know, each award would be named after a particular listener who, and that award would uh, embody the finer characteristics of that. Listener. And we could get like a bobblehead version of us and we mail them the award. I think we should. Yeah, like we mail them. Yeah, I like. So anyway, that's uh, that's something we're going to have to get our uh, R&D people working on. R&D, we, if we have those. We need people first. All right. Well, how about you? You, I'll research you design. How's that? Yeah, that R&D, good? research right. and development. So uh, we decided to, today to talk a little bit about uh, American evangelicalism, something we've talked about in the past, yeah, but this uh, piece by by Michael Gerson got a lot of traffic. It's funny because I posted it. Sometimes I use Twitter, like if I want to make sure to read something. Yeah, yeah. Like I just tweet it so I know where it is. I do and too. Yeah. People were retweeting it before I read it, so I was like, shoot! I, now I have to really read it quickly. <laughs> but I read it, you know, a little a couple hours after I posted it, and. It's gotten a lot of conversation. Yeah, it, it has. Yeah, um, was it uh, some of the morning talk shows too? Was he was he on Morning Joe? I have I don't know. Possibly. I don't I don't know. I, but I yeah no I think uh, it's in the it's in the latest issue of the Atlantic. Well worth reading, and um, he does a nice a little. I'm think I'm actually thinking of having my some of my students. He does a nice little survey. I mean, he's strongly he borrows from uh, George Marston's uh, book a lot, but. Uh, a nice little kind of overview survey of some of the trends in evangelicalism. And, you know, it's interesting, too. I, I um, taught uh, German pietism last night. And I, I just think, uh, boy, that would be, particularly, you know, we talk about the law gospel issue a lot. Uh, I think, um, 
Johann Hart would be a great corrective to a lot of the extremes either way on that. I mean, I think some of the early – pietism gets a bad name, but the early pietists were much more integrated. Um, so, did, did you talk about Spiner and Pia Desidera? I did. I did. See, That's the six points. I paid attention. In there we go. His six, his six characteristics. So it needs to happen. Yeah. Spiner. Yeah, I like. The, I have my I have Spiner around here somewhere. Yeah. Very nice. I would have aced. How did the students find the midterm? By the way? I didn't correct them yet. All right. But they they were they, they they were beautiful. They prayed for John. It was a beautiful, very moving. I still gave him the midterm. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so yeah. So basically, the subtitle of. Gerson's piece is, it's called The Last Temptation, How Evangelicals, Once Culturally Confident, Became an Anxious Minority, Seeking Political Protection from the Least Traditionally Religious President in Living Memory. Yeah. <laughs> and I would say non-traditionally religious. I mean, why do you why do you have to put traditionally religious? What non-traditional? Are the Scientologists like, well, I mean, on our scale of piety, he really, I mean, you know, he, I'm sure he's jumping right yeah, in the sauna for the detox and the audit. I mean, I mean, in what in what non-traditional religion does Trump score a, a, a mild? Yeah. And by the way, what was the anti-God thing in the Pennsylvania election yesterday? I don't know. I mean, like the Republican candidate, I heard his last thing he said, and they're, they're, you know, they're anti-America, or they're liberal, they're anti-America, they're anti-God. I thought the guy that won's pretty, he's a pretty, he's a pro-life guy. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a pro-life Catholic, isn't he? I think. Yeah, he was good, too. I saw him on Morning yeah. Show. He was very measured. I, oh, I, yeah, he's good. What, if President Trump calls you to graduate, what will you say? Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, at one point, wasn't Trump making fun of the way he looked? Well, he said, they say he's a handsome guy. I think I'm more handsome than him. And then he said, who is the candidate? They were, he's like, he's not bad looking. I like this guy too. He's handsome. <laughs> that was the biggest, like, that rally was like, basically the summary of that rally would be, he's a douchebag, but we need him in Congress. And yeah, we're redrawing the district anyway. And really, show up for me. That's the important thing. <laughs> like it was- Douchebag, douchebag in chief. Yeah, That's douche, yeah. I mean, he just basically, he, I feel like he made the candidate look worse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I don't think I don't think people are going to be standing. You know, any district that would want him to come doesn't need him to come. That's what my thinking would be in the midterm elections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's a district too. Think about this: he's plus fifty percent in the district, the Monmouth poll, which is a pretty good barometer. Yeah. Plus fifty percent and won the district by twenty points, and Connor Lamb won. Yeah, like what if you can't? Like if you have a rally and you can't push the juice for somebody. Where you won, but they, we, that, there's no cocktail to speak of. Yeah, there's a bad moon horizon. For yeah, the I mean GOP. that's just, yeah. but that's just fascinating. It is fascinating that he can't motivate those votes. I mean, yeah, and I think the other guy ran on what what politics should be. I mean, all politics should be local, and the guy who won, Lamb, talked about the concerns of his constituencies, which yeah. he should. Yeah, yeah, uh, Scott, who did? Somebody at Rounds asked, who do you vote? Well, it's not our district. It's, yeah, our district. it's in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. It's the other side. We would have voted four times, but they didn't. Yeah, we would have voted. Exactly. Yes. Lipless is, you're going to hear about that. I'm just uh, saying. I'm sure he's going to investigate. Gonna hear, I'm sure yeah. the Russians are already on us. Yeah, that's true. We do have, uh, I've got Russian readers on my blog, which I'm assuming are the same Russians that are tailing us. I hope so. <laughs> bring us some vodka. Well, anyway. Right. So back to the article. So, but yeah. So basically, he quotes Jerry Falwell Jr. Evangelicals have found their dream <laughs> president, <laughs> which says something about the current quality of evangelical dreams. <laughs> I mean, 
I, yeah, it, it, it boggles. It just boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. So he talks about how, you know, evangelicalism, you know, at its heyday pre-Civil War, you know, was doing pretty well. And then... Uh, well, maybe we should... What, how, what does he define evangelical? Because I think that's... Again, I do think we have to kind of continue to define that. So remind me what his definition of evangelical is. Well, he's, I mean, he's thinking these conservative Protestant sort of... I mean, does he define it, actually? Personal faith. I mean, I personal, think... Yeah, he does has... Uh, what did he say? I forget how he defined it. Um, this is very bad radio. Right. Well, I mean, I think traditionally it's described. I mean, you think of... When you think of... He does That's funny. He doesn't really describe doesn't define, it. Well, you know, you, I, you, how about I define it? You define it. Well, I think for me, when I think about evangelicalism, I think of, you know, the, that movement that came out of, it's kind of, if you pour German pietism, um, the Great Awakening, Wesleyanism, and then the Second Great Awakening, if you pull that all together, the trajectories that came out of that, uh, you know, um, are evangelical. There's different versions of evangelical that, that came out of that, but it was a uh, heartfelt religion, um, a faith believed and lived, um, and it, it tended, and in its best days, not to be sectarian. I mean, it tended, one of the things about the evangelical impulse, this goes back to pietism. And, you know, the Moravians, for instance, uh, they would send their, their little covenantal groups, their little diaspora groups, into already existing churches with the goal of not creating a new denomination, but to try to increase the spirituality uh, and, and fervor of those congregations. And that, you know, what you're talking about, you know, the, I mean, it was a big deal. For they sent Bill and I in to decrease the fervor. <laughs> hey, calm it down. Tone it down. But, you know, for instance, it's a big deal in, uh, in the Great Awakening for an Anglican George Whitfield and a Dutch Reformed person like Friedenhausen and the Tenet Brothers, the Presbyterians, all to work together. Right, right. And if, and a lot of Anglican churches, or Episcopal, Episcopal over here, you know, they, like, Wesley... And Whitfield couldn't get inside them to preach, so they just let. But they'd have them in the fields. They'd let them in Presbyterian right. to Baptist churches, and so there. It's it isn't well. Whitfield. That's, that's how Whitfield started. Yeah, with in the coal miners in in England, and you know Wesley when he first heard about it was a little suspicious. We're bringing back coal, so we might get a new Whitfield because <laughs> we're making coal great again. Yeah, no, one of the most powerful stories about as Whitfield was preaching, and the same thing. I think it said the same with Wesley. You could see the streaks of tears. On the cold faces. So, ben Franklin said, Whitfield could make you weep just by saying Mesopotamia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but so, I know, so today, I mean, you think, or traditionally you think, high authority of the Bible, too. High authority of the Bible, yeah, but, personal but, relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus. Even if you're baptized as an infant, it's, it's, it, but there is some kind of yeah, felt awakening. Faith, a, a felt faith awakening. Yeah. And, and the evangelizing, the fact that... The faith should be shared. Should, should be shared. And, and also often involved... Reform. I mean, like you know, there was often periods of of real, you know, people in the Second Great Awakening were often, you know, signed up for abolitionist causes and, and you know other things like that. I mean, there were there was a passion for societal well, change. One can make a good argument. One of the re- that uh, one of the reasons there wasn't a French style revolution in 18th century England was in part the result of the Wesleyan revivals because there was a lot of reform going on. Uh, Child labor, you know, labor, uh, slavery, and other things like, that. and also just the temperament. You know, with with the Scotland thing, when they were saying, you know, their big campaign to not leave the UK, mm-hmm. the people that wanted to stay, their their thing was um, on leaving. No, just say no thanks, no thanks. And John Oliver said, I mean, that's the second most passionate British phrase, right behind I couldn't possibly. Yeah, I, I, my theory is that from you know uh, Henry the Eighth up through. Uh, 
William and Mary, that they were so burned out from killing each other and they were so confused about what religion it was that they just decided to be remarkably calm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I yeah. think they burned that all out for 100 When they say you can't make the Irish moral and you can't make the English religious. Yeah, yeah it's, it's temperate. Uh, yeah, so he says that basically— and all my ancestors resent that right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I alienated the entire Boer tribe. Yeah, those is, are German. I generally yeah. probably do that regularly anyway, yeah, you inadvertently. Do. Yeah, we won't. Well, that was inadvertent, too. Yeah, so. we, won't, we, won't, we won't hold it again. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and you'll continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald samantha blythe david norling Charlotte Donlan, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, and Andrew Stravitz. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. So he talks about how pre-Civil War, evangelicalism's heyday, it's largely post-millennial too, which is interesting. Because you think about that today, evangelicalism was, I mean, there's, I mean, there are just not many evangelical post-millennials. Post-millennialism is what really fueled the Protestant world mission movement. Yeah. 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 So this this kind of, and then after he says, you know, after Antietam and some of you know, the Civil War, post-Civil War period, it looks like it's hard to have that optimistic faith. And evangelicalism, it, what does he say? It, by the, by the post-Civil War. I mean, the trauma. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a, some interesting work over the last years of the trauma of the Civil War on this national consciousness. It probably increased the savagery of the way you know, Native Americans were treated in the West. Uh, you know, certainly the Industrial Revolution, but it, had, it did have a profound effect on the religious consciousness of the country. Um, and I do think that was, and, and again, the popularity of D.L. DL Moody uh, and those prophecy camps and such that happened after the Civil War. I mean, that really is part of how premillennialism took the day, you know. Yeah. And then, so then you have, he talks about how so the emergence of American fundamentalism is in the 20th century, which was consciously not evangelical in, in the in outlook in the sense of it wasn't postmillennial. It also was not, it was sectarian. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it was, it was, it, they were the first maybe neo and a baptist well, I, I, I mean, you know, for instance like the bible church movement yeah yeah those folks they're they were as critical of of evangelicals as they were of mainline people yeah yeah so you have this and then with you know the return of billy you know with billy graham on the scene and people like carl henry fuller christianity today you get these people that want to go back to the older sort of 
more ecumenical evangelicalism that's conservative religiously and yet culturally engaged and not as sectarian. And so, you know, this is evangelicalism's heyday in America, you could say, you know, comes, I guess, when, early, when, like, well, you know, numer- sec- numerically it would be the 60s, and 60s 70s. 70s yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then the moral majority comes and and, and kills it. Yeah. <laughs> Spiritually kills it. Yeah. You, you dance with the devil, that's where you end up. No, I think, and, uh, you know, we've said this before, evangelicalism made the, made the same mistake that mainline Protestant liberalism made. And you can argue the same mistake that certain Catholic hierarchies made with dictators around the world uh, or the Greek Orthodox or the Orthodox churches in their own, you know, totalitarian governments in their backyard. When you go to bed with power, the children that are produced are not legitimate. And I think that's, I mean, I will give our uh, our power critique brother that. I do think what happens is power is a corrupting force. And I think so the really other moral bankruptcy of evangelicalism and its support of Donald Trump is a direct child of, um, Jerry Falwell is a child. <laughs> yeah, these guys are children, you know. Uh, now, Billy Franklin Graham uh, is uh, the, that apple fell far from the tree, far, far from both of his parents. Uh, yeah. But um, he would be, we'd argue for his adoption if he didn't look like him. But uh, no, but I think what you have there is um, you have the, what the fruits of, you know, again, Ronald Reagan never claimed to be an evangelical. I mean, they had they did seances, seances in the White House while he was there. That was his wife. But, but you know what? The evangelical leaders appropriated him. And evangelical leadership worked against a professing evangelical and Jimmy Carter to elect Ronald Reagan. So that kind of merger of a certain political ideology with uh, with a particular kind of Christianity, well, Donald Trump's the embracing of Donald Trump is uh, is the um, maybe I don't know if it's the final stage of it. I'd hate to see what the next stage of it would be. If but that's where we get. That's where it comes from. Among other, I mean, you put that with the cultural issues. You put that with. Scared white people, you know, all all that combined, and you also the fact is that self-identifying evangelicals, a lot of people that support them, call themselves evangelicals, are not going to church, so they don't even have that kind of, you know, I, you and I've talked about it before. I mean, I, I was born in West Virginia, grew up in South Central Pennsylvania, and you know, I remember there was this one person in the church that, I mean, right now he would be, you know, somebody at a Trump rally. I mean, he would be the quintessential Trump supporter. But, you know, the church was conservative, but he used to want to do kooky things. And, you know, the kind of the, the unofficial elders of the church would take him aside and say, you know, you know, we love you, but this is not what Jesus would do. But there seems to be none of those, none of those people taking any of those folks aside. And I think part of it is I don't think they go to church. Well, yeah, a lot of them don't. I mean, this is the hillbilly elegy kind of yeah. argument. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because Gerson concludes by saying, this is the result when Christians become one interest group among many, yeah. scrambling for benefits at the expense of others rather than seeking the welfare of the whole. Christianity is love of neighbor or has lost its way. And this sets an urgent task for evangelicals to rescue their faith from its worst leaders. I think that line itself where Christianity has become an interest group. I mean, you and I have been very critical. We, we've, we have seen what that looks like ad nauseum in mainline circles. And so you're you're hard pressed to find uh, um, you're hard pressed to find Christ in any of that stuff. And I think um, you know what's going on today. You've got probably millions of of young people who have walked out of their schools protesting, and 
you know, wanting, you know, many of them grieving their friends who were lost to gun violence. And the vast majority of what people call themselves evangelical do not have a message for those people, for those kids. Matter of fact, they're going to be supporting policies that these kids are going to spend. You know, we have a new generation of one one issue voters, perhaps, and uh, and evangelical is on the wrong. Evangelicalism is on the wrong side of history on this one. I'm a one issue voter. What snow you, removal. Snow <laughs> I I feel like snow removal is like so, right now we're like. You see these municipalities, like one to the next, where like roads are clear. Snow we, removal. We is, don't. We don't have enough snow to be that concerned about. It. It's when it hits, though, it's big. It's big. But I'm just saying. Now, if you're in New England right now, yes, I would be concerned about that. But anyway, no, I think it's an article, and I think it's a warning. And again, I think the other thing too is those of you. I don't consider myself an evangelical anymore. I'm thankful that I was. That I got what I got from them, and I'm also thankful I'm not part of them anymore. But. Uh, I think those of you who care about this issue and consider yourself still part of that community, um, I actually think that just reacting to right wing, um, I think, are these kind of cultural forces is not enough. I think you have to offer some positive alternatives. And again, I've said this before, you know, as much as I have trouble wrapping my mind around jettisoning your faith for any political cause, I think the same thing is true. I mean, I've had heart breaking conversations with liberals, too, who were willing to jettison churches for their particular cause. I, I just, I think that we still have to try to treat these people as if they're our brothers and sisters, because, you know, I mean, only God knows <laughs> who is and who isn't, and they claim to be. So I think we still have to try to approach this from an idea of Christian charity, Christian unity, uh, brothers and sisters speaking to brothers and sisters. Amen to that. And in that spirit, the response from David French, a brother— a guy I, I personally like a lot. Uh, he he basically says, you know, that he and he's sympathetic with. I mean, they're both. It's funny because they're both evangelical Protestants, right? And they're both never Trumpers, right? And so, in some ways, he's sy- deeply sympathetic with right. Gerson's speech. But he says that you know this feeling of under siege is a little bit minimized as to understanding, you know, why it, it, it's under, why does it feel like it's under siege? And he says, you know, that he's talking about some of the same-sex marriage stuff, and and he says, this is a curiously reductive way, Gerson's way of describing things, uh, describing a series of legal changes that undermine the traditional constitutional order, cleared the way for the deaths of tens of millions of innocent children, he's talking about abortion, and jeopardize the autonomy and liberty of the institution Christian parents chose to train and educate their kids. Why would Oberfell, which is a case, raise fears of coercion? Perhaps because of these actual words from President Obama's Solicitor General during oral arguments. Justice Samuel Alito. Well, in the Bob Jones case, the court held that a college was not entitled to tax-exempt status if it opposed interracial marriage or interracial dating. So would the same apply to a university or a college if it opposed same-sex marriage? And the Solicitor General says, you know, I, I don't think I can answer that question without knowing more specifics, but it's certainly going to be an issue. I don't deny that. I don't deny that. Justice Alito, it is. It is going to be an issue. And he points to other things about nuns being forced to distribute contraceptives right. and things where he thinks that, that French thinks, well, look, there are, you know, he's not, you know, basically he, he says towards the end of the article, um, first off, evangelicals, uh, a lot of it, some of the stuff they just refuse to believe. We were going to talk in a future right. episode of self-deception. You know, like right. I just don't believe that. But some of it is this kind of um, 
whataboutism too, which he thinks the whataboutism is a big problem. Well, what about this? What about this? That he says, you know, that's a failure of moral ideals and, and vision. If you if you re, if you resort to whataboutism, you've lost your ideals when that's your primary form of argumentation. Yeah, and I think part of the, I mean, frankly, Trump is a bigger disaster for the conservative movement than he is for the liberal movement. In part because people like French and Gerson, who can these some of their concerns, and why they're never Trumpers, but for the vast for the for for the most part, conservative members of Congress, including uh, the, one of the biggest disappointments in Congress, Paul Ryan, uh, you know, they basically lockstep gone in with what Trump is about. So some of the moral issues and some of the very legitimate issues that I appreciate hearing from, you know, conservative intellectuals and. Uh, uh, that whole, you know, that they certainly. When but, you said you're talking about like Sean Hannity, right? <laughs> but like the people like Mr. French and others, you know, that's probably the big. I think the conservative movement has been set back, um, uh, yeah, pre Barry Goldwater from this whole. And a lot of those people, these kind of conservative intellectual hybrid, they were like banned from CPAC. A lot of them. I mean, they're just you. You just didn't see them like. This year, yeah, I mean, CPAC has become like a national inquiry convention. Yeah, and I'm just next year. It'll be they had the French Marxists. Next year, they'll have the right wing from the planet Zenith speak. Probably. Yeah, the conservative has a socialist. That, <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting. So this is, is the conclusion. Um, he, he, like, he French again. This is a guy who's a never Trumper. He said, "Look, but you you put evangelicals in a place of a morally ambiguous adversary or morally ambiguous ally, who that's many." That was many views, many evangelicals of Hillary Clinton. A lot of them are going to choose the morally ambiguous ally. And he says, sure. this is Gerson's key insight, you know, that, that evangelicals behave, you know, or not, you know, are behaving like everybody else. This is, but it, matter, it matters exactly how evangelicals arrive where they are today. It wasn't the hysterical reaction of a self-pitying people. For most, it was the sad result of a series of tough choices made in response to difficult and unreasonable challenges. Even today, there are millions of evangelicals, people who still count themselves reluctant Trump supporters who are deeply uneasy with the president and the state of their own religious movement. It serves no one's interest to minimize the legitimacy of their deep political concerns. Gerson has written a powerful essay, but it understates the justification for evangelical support for Trump and exaggerates rank-and-file evangelical perfidy. Evangelicals aren't worse than other American political tribes. Instead, we're proving that in politics, we're just like everyone else. In other words, the true sin of white American evangelicalism isn't that we're exceptionally bad. It's that we're not exceptional at all. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. I think, yeah, and, and the eye, but, but what's really unsettling uh, that, you know, you had candidates, you had Republican candidates who could have spoken more articulate with much more articulation and much more integrity to those core concerns that they didn't elect well but you know it's interesting a lot of people voted for those types of people in the primaries and then voted for trump in the general right i mean it's interesting because i mean but i'm still what i'm saying is that you uh, again history shows us by uh going for extreme correctives when you in your elected leaders or whether however you choose your leaders that doesn't usually come out. That doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. In other words, I mean, I, um, I won't have to do this in a future podcast, but at the hospital uh, where John is, each floor is named after, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, we're in Philadelphia, so each floor in the parking garage is named after a principal of early American. And, you know, there's freedom of press, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, protection of minorities, things like that. Part of, and I'm thinking this current administration is attacking every one of <laughs> every floor in the uh, parking garage they attack. And uh, and I mean, I'm not. Is there a Second Amendment floor? Uh, there's not a Second Amendment floor. Um, but what I'm saying is the the core values of this country, which are you know a mixture of and you know locking enlightenment. Uh, uh, rhetoric from the Great Awakening is a very mixture of ideals uh, that certainly are religious. They may not, they're not Orthodox Christian, but they are certainly religious, and you can understand why Orthodox Christians got behind them. Um, all, all those values are under assault, and sometimes it happens in one political speech in Western Pennsylvania. <laughs> I think every one of them was attacked in Trump's and speech. And Chuck Todd, man. I'm like the most fair guy, one of the most yeah, fair yeah, guys yeah. out He's there. He's a sleepy-eyed son of a bitch. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? You're, you're shitting on to- Chuck Todd? I mean, of all the people. All right, well, you know what? He, <laughs> He's a sleeping son. I mean, uh. You know what? The fact is, evangelicals, you've aligned yourself who who taints every person and everything he touches. Yeah, he's got the absolute minus touch. But yeah, he does. So, and I think that's um, – and again, I, I think Rex was a bad secretary of state, but um, – Everybody deserves a little bit better than that. So almost everybody. It's interesting. This is this is. I want to read something from um, from D.G. Hart's book, The Lost Soul of American Protestantism. He talks about um, there's this this kind of when you try to make religion about everything, it can trivialize religious yeah. faith. He yeah. says this is a point made well in an editorial for the New Republic in response to then Texas Governor George W. Bush's declaration on. Of June 11, 2000 is Jesus Day, a time dedicated. I didn't know there was that Jesus. A time dedicated to Christ's example of love, compassion, sacrifice, and service. The, the, these virtues, the writer insisted, were not the reason for Christians worshiping Jesus. Instead, it was his status as the Son of God. Consequently, Bush did not glorify Jesus; he cheapened Jesus, which is the certain fate of religion in the public square. Mm-hmm. But the trivialization of religion by making it public was not only a problem for Republicans. Another writer from the New Republic spotted. A similar pattern, the way the press covered the response of, response of 2000 Democratic vice presidential, presidential candidate and Orthodox Jew Joe, Le, Joseph Lieberman to questions about the relationship between religious observance and public ethics. The problem with all of the efforts to read religious significance into Lieberman's politics was that it missed an essential feature of modern Orthodox Judaism, namely that all realms of life do not submit equally to religious authority and that Judaism need not promise an answer for each of life's multitudinous questions. Political questions, this writer added, do not always have a theological, not always have theological answers. On certain subjects, the OMB, uh, Office of Management and Budget, can be more helpful than the Babylonian Talmud. <laughs> In some, a healthy spiritual existence often depends on the rigorous separation of the sacred from the mundane. But this assertion runs against the grain of the dominant expression of American Protestantism in the way that religious tradition has shaped American conceptions of the relationship between this world and the old one to come. And you know, it's funny that whole thing about Bush, because I was thinking about that as it Gerson says, Christianity is love of neighbor. No, That's it's not. the, it's, it's, it's the love of God manifested in the story of Israel and the work and climaxing of the work and person of Jesus Christ. <laughs> like it's now, a- may, I, may I argue that the best ethics of Islam, of Judaism, of Christianity, of Buddhism, of Kant is love of neighbor. Yeah. Right. I, and there's so, that, so, um, there's nothing. I think. I think diverse groups can come around ethical ideas, sure, but not theological ones. Yeah, and I think that this is interesting. That, that and we've talked about this before, but basically, Hart's idea is that really so much of of Gerson's history 
is kind of the Mars and the, the Mars and thesis of the fundamentalist modernist controversy right. and, and what goes up. He says, really, you want to understand American Christianity. It's the old school, new school stuff, which we're going to talk about next week. Which we, yeah. We yeah. New Brunswick theological. School. Yeah. So it's, yeah. And we'll, uh, I'm going to go to Bill's class, which, uh, yeah, I'm strapped on your seatbelts. Could I, be epic. Epic. It will. It, not could. It will. Of what, <laughs> epi, epic what? Of epic uh, proportions of some yeah. sort. Of, but I think that, that this kind of crusader faith, yeah. where everything, where politics becomes your religion, you know, where every, it, it, where, I mean, that kind of religiosity is toxic. And it's, you know, all the people in the fundamentalist modernist controversy are, are new schoolers, are, are right. children of a kind of revivalistic, right. you know. Except maybe. Well, we will get it. We'll get yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm painting with a broad right, stroke, right. but by and large, I mean yeah, Machen no. was Machen. You could argue, you know, yeah, it's, that's it's from eccentric. Yeah. There, and D.G. Hart is a Machen devotee. Yeah, so right. you, there are these, you know, but this is part of the thing. Like it's, it's, it, it, Trump is not the cause right. as much as he's the symptom. Absolutely I mean, he's symptom. not the, of something that the whole kind of Christian America imperialistic religiosity. I sound like Dave Fitch right now, which is a little bit disturbing, a little, but you know, as, a little bit. I love that guy. As we're Fitch. Robert De Niro, a little yeah. bit, a little, a little bit, a little bit. So I, I think you know, it. I think both of these pieces, I'll link to them in the show notes, are worth reading. But I think the problem with with American Christianity runs much deeper than Donald Trump. Yeah, and I think we've again, we don't know our history, and uh, and you know, this uh, Connecticut, the colony of Connecticut, was founded because. A group of people didn't think that they were being strict enough in Puritan Massachusetts. <laughs> so Davenport, I think the city of Davenport was founded. And initially, they wanted to be a pure image of what it would be to be a Christian community. So they literally, for a while, their financial system and their weights and measurements was based on the Bible. <laughs> and and that, that lasted for about six months. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a sense where, yeah, when, it beca- when you try to, you know, you, the reductionism— like you just said, um, it waters down everything. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Have a good good day, folks. And let's. Um, I was going to say, what's the alternative to watering it down? Christianity, straight up, straight up. <laughs> no chaser. <laughs> all right. Take care, folks. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble, you might like to dance You may be the heavyweight champion of the world You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody Well it may be the devil Deserve somebody Maybe a rock and roll addict Dancing on the stage Money drugs at your command Women in a cage You may be a businessman Or some high degree thief They may call you doctor Or they may call you chief But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you are. You're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Serve somebody. You may be a state trooper, 
Serve somebody. 